Welcome to Work in Progress, the podcast where we talk about work and how it's changing, sometimes for the better, sometimes in ways we never expect. We want this show to be a little different, so while we will talk to leaders and innovators who we think bring fresh, diverse perspectives about work, we also want to talk to individual contributors and frontline workers. If you think you have a unique perspective on how your work is evolving, or how it should, let us know. You can email us at connect at myaslearning.com. You might find yourself a guest on here one day. Now I'm very excited to bring on the program a special guest. Today we're going to be talking to Robin Darling, who is the executive director over at More Than Sex Ed. Robin, how are you today? I'm great. Thank you, Conrad. I'm glad to be here. Cool. So glad to have you. Thanks for coming. Um, Why don't you give us just a little bit of your background, your story, and, and what you do over at More Than Sex Ed? Sure, great. Um, So I took over as executive director at More Than Sex Ed fairly recently, as of July 1st, Um, but I've been working in the field of sexuality and gender education um, actually since I was in high school, so a couple of decades now. Um, And I've done a lot of various work from research to education uh, to working on projects and programs that assist youth. Um, I also have some training in uh, talking with parents and adults who interact with youth about sexuality and gender um, as well as some professional development uh, settings where we talk about gender, gender and sexuality in the workplace. Um, and I'm very happy to be at More Than Sex Ed. I've been training with them for years and I'm excited um, for this new chapter as their executive director. Well, congratulations on that. And, Thank you. Uh, yeah, definitely looking forward to talk to you a little bit today. In general, I always love talking to you. I think it's such a pleasure <laughs> you have um, an amazing mind and and you've got a lot of really interesting experiences um and especially i think just coming from the field of uh, human sexuality i think that's a field that the average person has little to no real expertise about so i've always really enjoyed listening to you you know basically educate me about things that you know at once i have experienced but don't really fully understand you know and so today we're going to talk specifically about professionalism the notion of professionalism in the workplace. Uh, It's something that feels kind of nebulous, but we all sort of know what it means. So maybe we can just kind of start there. When we think, when people say professionalism, traditionally at least, what are they talking about? Um, Well, honestly, professionalism is essentially rooted in um, standards to control the labor force, really. Um, It's about creating sort of social normativity um, and constants within a workplace uh, essentially designed as a constraint for workers in the labor force um, because you know the idea is that if you can get everyone to you know leave their personalities at home and sort of get uniformity within the workplace that you're more likely to get hard work or reliability or consistency out of your employees Um, so in that sense um, it's sort of rooted in this idea of manager control of of the labor force. Um, But what it really translates into in a lot of workspaces is things like dress code and um, what is appropriate to talk about at work, what parts of your personal life are appropriate to share, um, that sort of thing can kind of uh, come into professionalism as well as how you represent whatever company you're working for and interactions and things like that. Okay, and so some of these things like, you know, dress code, we we see, codified in things like, you know, an employee's manual or employee, you know, something like that, staff manual. But then there's these sort of unspoken notions of professionalism 
and and those are the ones that I suspect you'll tell us more, but I think might be potentially more harmful, even some of the overt ones like dress code. Um, but but just let's just talk about that for a minute. Like in what ways might professionalism be harmful? Um, well, the notions of what an employee is supposed to be like in the workplace are often um, designed around what white middle class men behave like in the workplace. And so um, it can be harmful to anyone who's not, <laughs> um, you know, a middle-class white male. Um, and, and I think that um, both the overt uh, and covert expectations around professionalism um, are rooted in this idea of uh, assimilating to what is a white cultural norm, um, rather than, you know, bringing your whole self and interacting with people in a way that is, you know, traditional for you or part of your culture, you, you know, you being the nebulous, person out there who's not a straight white male. <laughs> um, so I think that um, oftentimes it's used, the context it's used in is like, like you mentioned, there's a lot of regulation in employee manuals and things like that, but the underlying less articulated ones have to do with company culture um, and who's whose ideas get valued, how the process of how ideas are shared, the way that people are praised, um, you know, procedural fairness and equity can still exist on paper, but if notions of pro professionalism are impacting who, who feels comfortable and safe sharing or contributing, um, then you're going to be harming some folks um, with ideas of professionalism. An example would be uh, something that is prominent and comes up a lot right now is the idea of what is professional hair is very much rooted in um, whiteness. And so folks who, who don't have traditionally white people hair um, have been told that their natural hairstyles, I'm speaking specifically, you know, black women are often told that their natural hairstyles are not appropriate or professional for the workplace, which is really problematic um, that a workplace would make them have to do something, you know, special, a lot of treatment special to their hair um, to be able to be in a workplace. So that's, you know, that's a very overt standard that when writing it, writing it, they're not maybe intending to be racist, but it inherently is racist in its procedure. Um, the other one is, um, you know, less uh, codified in manuals, but most workplaces, most office settings, the thermostat is set at a temperature that is uh, meant for men who are wearing suits. And, um, you know, as a gender and sexuality expert, um, folks know that if you have um, higher amounts of testosterone in your body, you tend to run a little bit hotter. That is just the way that bodies work. And so when you're setting thermostats, only considering, you know, folks who are wearing full suits and, you know, are likely to run a little bit hotter, you can be creating problematic work environments for people who don't fit into that norm. So I think you're you're touching on a lot of really interesting stuff, and I wish you had time to unpack all of it. Um, there's something that, you know, if you're on the receiving end of some of these overt or, or covert, um, you know, cultural values or practices or behaviors, um, I think you know that, um, and and you know that kind of engenders this feeling of not being fully welcome as yourself. Um, what if you're somebody who presents like me as this white hetero male, um, like you just said, like, I never noticed the temperature in a room, I just walk around comfortably. So like, how would I know that I was in a workplace that might have this harmful imposition of professionalism and professional culture? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a really great question and there's lots of levels to that. But I think um, the first thing I would say that um, is something that really rings true for me and works well in this context is sort of unpacking the why of different standards and policies in the workplace. And that might come from my own um, sort of upbringing and uh, interest in questioning authority. <laughs> but I think that it's important when you're looking at any procedure or policy, when you're trying to create a workspace of why, why is this important? What does it actually do? Um, and if you can't find an answer or it's or the answer is because this is professional. It's that weird loop of, but what is professional? Well, this, but why? Because it's professional. That That's really indicators that those are some, some problematic um, policies or company cultures. And I think that one of the ways to really, um, you know, regardless of your identity, one of the ways to really um, create a workspace that is not beholden to these traditional notions of professionalism is to, uh, be in communication with the people who are working in that workplace about what they want and need to feel comfortable. And that's going to be different depending on your staff, but just the action of asking your team what sorts of cultural norms they want in their workplace, what sorts of, um, you know, written policies and procedures and sort of unwritten policies and procedures make them feel comfortable. That process of getting input is already breaking down a little bit uh, that, you know, professional barrier that's set up in traditional workplaces. I love that. That actually does a great job at sort of teeing up my next little little question here. Oh, perfect. Um, because, <laughs> because I'm thinking about, you know, that Mayas have worked with organizations that are new and fresh or, or, or you know, um, equity-minded, justice-minded, you know, and throughout my career, personally, I've also worked with like big, giant, decades-old corporations that have all this inertia. Right. And so I'm thinking like maybe, you know, there's a manager or a leader out there who's like, all right, it's it's a tall task for me by myself, not that, that they shouldn't be advocating, but like to full sales change the culture and, and policies. But um, at least on my team, maybe there's something I can do, like I can start that process. I can start modeling for other managers and leaders what it's like to to bring inclusive practices into my team. And, and kind of start be, you know, being the change. So what are some things that, uh, and you just started talking about like conversations to be, to be had, you know, what can managers and leaders, uh, even individual contributors do uh, to create a space where people feel like they can really bring their full selves to work? Um, well, I think some of it is, um, you know, you're probably uh, well steeped in uh, educational pedagogy. And I think a lot of that applies in the workplace, right? The idea that not everyone processes information or works in the same way. Um, and so if you can broaden how you communicate with your staff and check in with them about how best to communicate with them, you're already creating the, um, you know, the groundwork needed to kind of break down some of those um professionalism barriers that are set up in the workplace. Um, and I, the thing that I would advocate as any leader or manager, or, you know, it doesn't matter if your company is producing a product, if people are making that product, you are, you're, you're buying someone's labor, you're buying a person's labor. And so you need to treat them like people. And I think that oftentimes um, in leadership settings, when you get busy or it's crunch time and there's a lot to get done, um, we forget that there is very much importance in continuing to have healthy relationships, um, levels of intimacy with our coworkers. This, this notion that people leave themselves behind and come into a professional space just to work um, it's, 
it's not real. It's not realistic. Like we're people, we bring ourselves regardless if we're allowed to or not. Um, and you know, as the work that I do in teaching gender and sexuality, we also focus a lot on relationships, healthy relationships, communication. We talk about how um, intimacy isn't reserved for romantic relationships. Intimacy is involved in every single relationship you're in and having an understanding about how to be in healthy relationships is important for managers and leaders. Um, and so even if your company culture is that of some stifling professionalism, um, you as a manager can check in with your employees. Like, you know, if you're having one-on-ones or you're having leadership meetings, make room in those meetings for them to bring themselves, let them check in about what's going on, check in about things outside of work that might be impeding the progress that they're making or things that are outside of their purview that are impacting their ability to do their work best. And even if you can't change a company policy, being able to have a conversation with your team and staff about why that policy might be inhibiting them is a start to to letting them really bring themselves to work and a start to being able to make change um, within a larger workspace. And I'll be honest, I feel lucky in the spaces I'm in to have had relatively small teams, even when working at universities, which I've done a couple of times, the direct teams that I'm working on are small enough that we really can um, set up systems and affect change in a way that works best for the teams that we have to work with regularly. And it, and it is a little harder if you're in a company where, you know, your team is hundreds and hundreds of people. Right. I love that though. I love, um, one of the things you said that stood out to me that I really, appreciate and something that I really consider a lot um, in my own work is just from the start of a relationship or if, even if you're you know midstream in one to just check in on how we communicate with each other do you prefer you know how do you like to get feedback do you want like an email warm-up first and then we have a conversation or is it okay to just be direct and give it to you just even those little subtle things recognizing that like I might really love when people come directly to me and say, this is what you're doing and here's what I need to change. For other people that might feel really abrasive and just checking in with little things like that. I love that notion of just like level setting and how we communicate with each other. Well, and if you're a leader, you want you want your employees to do best. And if you're consistently giving them feedback, whether it's good or bad in a way that they're not receiving it, neither of you are winning, right? Neither of you are right. getting what you need. And so having your team be self-reflective about what they want and how they want that information is an important tool for them to connect and engage with the the work. And it makes things more effective for everybody. If you get a user guide of how you, how you can talk to your team and how best to communicate with your team. And that comes down to, I, I like that you mentioned that, that people don't, it's not universal, right? Someone might love to receive praise in a public meeting setting, but that is absolutely not the place that they want to receive constructive criticism. And so we have to learn that about our team members. And so anytime a new team member comes on board, the entire team really does have to adjust. It's not just the new person. It's everybody's got to learn each other and how best to communicate with each other to be the most, you know, effective, productive, creative, inspirational team that you can have. All right. I've got one last question. I'll be honest. It's a bit of a doozy. This is something I, I... I've asked myself many times in my own career, so um, I don't know that there is the right answer, and I'm just curious to see what your answer is. You know, we want to build these inclusive work cultures. Um, We want to create space 
in our conversations, in our relationships for people to bring their whole selves. That's what we've been talking about, you know, the whole time here. Um, and people are kind of messy. Um, we don't know what everyone's been through. I, I like the, that old phrase, you know, be kind, everyone carries a heavy burden. And we don't always know what that is. And we may never know, especially at work because people are not obligated to tell us those things. So what do we do um, when we're trying to, again, create space for someone to step into as themselves? And that self comes with maybe some toxic trauma responses based on things that we don't know and can't know. Um, what do you think? What can we do there? Um, well, you know, I don't tout myself as a trauma expert. Probably most managers out there in the world are not trauma experts. Um, and I wouldn't say it's the job of the workplace team to solve that trauma. But one of the things that can really happen if you're building a team that's built on trust and communication and articulation of how we need to be communicated is that you're setting up tools in place that your team can really have an understanding of uh, the, the difference between intent and impact, which is a really, um, you know, common phrase in social justice work and anti-racism work where people have to, to you know, it, it doesn't matter, well, it doesn't matter as much what you intended, the thing that's important is how it landed, and I think that if um, you're building a team where that's valued, um, and that's sort of you know, that's what you're doing. If you're asking people how best to communicate with them and how things land for them, you're trying to figure out a way that you can um, have a positive impact on them and not just intend to do good things. And so I think that that's where if someone's responding in a way that their, you know, their trauma is causing some toxic um, responses and the impact is negative on the rest of your team, the hope is that you've built some trust or you're working with the team to figure out how in advance to communicate when something, when something lands wrong, when something lands in a way that is harmful. And I think that, you know, in, there's lots of things to do in an immediate situation that would be, you know, pausing, taking a break, actually acknowledging what happened. Sometimes um, in meetings, you're like, we got to get through all this work and we forget to, to really dig in. If there's a, an ouch that happens, you can pause. You can pause the work and make sure your team is okay before moving back into work. And then the the larger things, honestly, this is where some institutional change has to happen. But I think that, you know, systems that tie our healthcare, our physical healthcare, our mental healthcare to being a full-time employee um, are problematic for people being able to be their best selves in the workplace. Because, you know, if someone really needs a break or is having, um, you know, an illness, whether it's mental or physical, and they don't have sick time or they don't have insurance to take care of those things, they're not, they're not best able to work. And so, you know, as much as I value a lot of these things in, in the workplace, this kind of um, circles back to a little bit of what you're talking about earlier of what can managers do when they can't change the whole, you know, the whole workplace or the whole system. You know, I don't have within my power, even as an executive director, to grant all of my staff health insurance outside of employment, right? That's not something I can do. So it's, it's about hopefully setting up a system of accountability um, and communication in advance of situations where there might be some harm or some toxicity that comes in and acknowledging that when that event occurs and things happen, that as a team, you have to take a little bit of time to address it and to heal before you could just jump back into being your productive team. And 
though it may seem like you're taking precious time that you could be working, you're actually preventing a lot, a lot more loss of time in the future if you handle things um, in a compassionate, empathetic, and you know, fully communicative way when they happen rather than six months down the road when someone's resentful or things like that. And again, I'm not a trauma expert, so I'm just going to add that caveat um, that you know there are some things that you know can't necessarily be worked out or handled in the workplace, and there are times when you know an employee might bring some stuff to a workplace that isn't an appropriate place to be handled, regardless of the notions of professionalism. It's possible for that to happen. So, great. Well, I love that answer. Trauma expert or no, I th I thought that <laughs> that was a very valuable. Um, bit of insight there and, and some really good ideas. Uh, and now we're going to do the last thing that I love to do with our guests is ask you to share a resource. Uh, it could be something you're recently reading, something near and dear that you just keep by your side for those tough moments. Um, what resource would you share with us to, in our listeners today? Um, well, the resource I have is actually, it's an activist resource that um, really helped me a lot in my professional life. Um, uh, and it's the School of Unity and Liberation. Um, they have some curriculum and some manuals that they have, and they have a curriculum that's specifically designed um, to teach about support and accountability um, in a workplace in an equitable, in an equitable manner. Um, and when I first started managing other staff and um, interns, I got this manual. Um, you know, 15 years ago and use it at one workplace. And at every workplace I go, I encourage any team that is going to be managing or providing supervision to anybody to go through this course, because it really talks about um, the importance of doing it equitably. It, it really is designed around the, the, the value of empowering your team. And it has some really, really great strategies for um, reflection and critique and making changes within the workplace. Um, and then the other one that I would recommend is the Management Center. It's a national organization housed out of DC and they have a website that has tons and tons of resources about managing and leadership down to you know specific templates for one-on-ones and things like that that are really helpful um, when someone's learning how to lead um, in a way that's effective. Awesome. Two great resources. Uh, we're definitely gonna link those in the show notes. Robin Darling, thank you so much for your time today. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, it's been wonderful. I love it. Thank you for inviting me here. And to close out today, we're going to examine, uh, as we do, how work is changing, inspired in part by our interview with Robin Darling. We'll take a closer look at dress codes, uh, how they work, and how they're changing as well. And so into a world whose technology, society, and culture were already being transformed at a blistering pace came the COVID-19 pandemic, and with it, new changes and challenges to the status quo. Among those changes, most of which are still ongoing, came new experiences in what constitutes professional dress. Across the world, frontline workers donned masks and other personal protective equipment or PPE, while office workers suddenly got to choose whether or not to wear pants to meetings. The overall trend, which predates the pandemic, has been toward less formal attire at work. 
Men's fashion brand Suit Supply CEO and founder Foke de Jong told Good Morning America a sort of hybrid composition to an outfit happening at the moment uh, is going on. And so while suits are coming and going, uh, people are using alternative layers uh, under, underneath to dress them down, uh, which that company is calling elevated casual. And in that same report, Good Morning America's Jacqueline Lauren Yates reports that Lululemon found in a recent survey that eight in 10 millennial men said they perform better at work when they're dressed comfortably. And close to nine in 10 would like their employer to loosen up dress code rules. But meanwhile, in the retail sector, researchers Christian Barney, Carol S. Mark Jones, and Adam Farmer discovered that shoppers view more formally dressed employees uh, as more expert in their work than the casually dressed peers that they work alongside, showing that formal attire still carries some weight socially even as trends tend toward more informal fashion at work. So what are we to make of all this? Certainly the appropriate attire for work varies vastly across different industries. Indeed, what is appropriate for work has changed significantly across history, as Richard Thompson Ford notes in his book, Dress Codes, How the Laws of Fashion Made History. Ford notes that the business suit as we know, it began as a minimalist response to the opulent dress of rulers during the enlightenment. Today's less formal dress code trends would seem to reflect that same sentiment uh, as folks are rebelliously wearing more casual works on their Zoom calls and uh, quitting their office jobs in droves. Dress codes and uniforms always have embedded in them subtexts of power differentials, expertise and approachability. When we take these subtexts alongside intersecting forms of oppression, it becomes clear how dress codes at a minimum might cause discomfort and more worryingly, can, can communicate to employees just how much of themselves they are allowed to express at work and whose workplace fashion cultures are welcome and whose are not. If you wanna learn more about dress codes and professionalism at work, you can check out our blog. Uh, if you have a dress code story worth sharing, we'd love to hear it. Please feel free to drop us a line at connect at myaslearning.com or visit our website, myaslearning.com, M-A-I-U-S, learning.com. Thank you, and we'll see you soon.